Sometimes we've seen a focus on access to public restrooms and efforts to prevent trans folks from using appropriate facilities. More recently, we've had this focus on school sports programs, blocking access to medical care, school curriculum, or pulling books out of libraries, or censoring teachers who want to provide accurate information to students. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 19th part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal, about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Isha now continues her conversation with Jenny. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Hi, it's great to be back with you. Last time, we were talking about a Supreme Court case questioning whether the state of Maine can be forced to spend taxpayer money on tuition at private religious schools. You mentioned that if religious schools are entitled to insist on receiving taxpayer money to pay for religious education, that would be a step that could lead to even further erosion of the wall between church and state. And this could include, for example, the idea that religious groups could insist on receiving public contracts while also being free to act on their religious beliefs, even when that harms the people being served. If the court requires Maine to pay for religious school tuition, how do you think it might affect the strategies using the LGBTQ equality movement, or even the likelihood of success in fighting for our rights in the courts? Well, it's a little difficult to predict now, since we don't know what the court is likely to do with the cases that it has right now and whether it will take more cases presenting some of these religion issues. There are a number of cases waiting, potentially, for Supreme Court attention So I think it's hard to say in terms of legal strategies what might come next. But regardless of what the court does, I think it will continue to be a very important part of our movement that we engage in wide-ranging conversations with our friends and neighbors and coworkers or members of society in general about the importance of protecting freedom of worship and freedom of belief but not freedom to harm other people, including discrimination against other people, for religious reasons. There's nothing new about this issue. Throughout human history, there have been times when some groups of people have opposed other groups of people for religious reasons and have tried to insist that everybody follow the same religious rules. And certainly for LGBTQ people, this has been an enormous problem as as we try to show society that we are good people, there's nothing wrong with us, and we should have the same constitutional rights, the same equal freedom as everyone else. We have had to engage in that persuasion work from the very beginning of our movement. And that, I think, certainly will not change. If the Supreme Court were to issue some rulings that give greater rights to religious institutions that want to discriminate against us, of course, we will continue to look for ways to develop the law in a way that we think is more consistent with the core principles of equal rights for everyone and equal freedom for everyone. But I think our movement as a whole also will continue to engage with religious institutions and leaders, engage them in the conversations about 
why we look at these issues the way we do and encourage them to change the way they treat us. There's nothing new about this. We have engaged in in legal work and political work, but sometimes the conversations in the public education work are the most important. We tend to not win in public policy advocacy or courtrooms if the people with whom we're speaking or the people that make the decisions don't understand who we are and why things need to change in a particular way. So it might mean that that persuasion work becomes that much more important. And we should note that many of the major faith denominations in the United States have been moving steadily to recognize us, to include us, to see that we pose no threat, that same-sex couples have wanted to get married and take care of our families for the same reasons that most heterosexual people do, and that this is about love and caring for each other. So there's been an enormous amount of progress, but not everywhere. And so some of that just means we need to be broadening uh, broadening our reach and deepening the conversations because the ultimate result is that we need institutional reform. Any, any institution that is caring for people and especially vulnerable people should be guided by principles that respects the dignity of every person and treats people based on, on who they are without insisting that they change. Let's talk now about the record number of anti-LGBTQ bills that have been coming up in the states. Do you think these laws are related to, or even a response to, the fact that President Trump wasn't reelected, and there's a perception that the federal government is no longer going to lead a crusade against LGBTQ people? Well, that's a very good question. I guess where I would start is that we saw an obscene onslaught of anti-LGBTQ bills last year, but we saw bills the year before that and the year before that. It's been a consistent problem, actually, going back at least a decade. I think some of the extreme reactionary forces in our country have seen LGBTQ people as a good organizing tool, as effective targets, because in many ways we have not been as well known as we could be. And in recent years, that has, especially the targeting, has been particularly intense and vicious in targeting transgender people and transgender youth especially. And that's certainly what we saw last year, but we we saw it a couple of years before that as well. I do think there are many people who had leadership positions within the previous administration who before that were active in state advocacy and with some of the biggest, wealthiest anti-LGBT advocacy groups. So some of those folks no longer have those top positions in the federal government, and they have gone back to some of the same large, wealthy, extreme reactionary groups that tend to focus a lot on trying to curtail the rights of LGBTQ people and also to restrict reproductive health care rights and, and other things. So I think that some of them have some time on their hands and are vigorous in pushing these bills. But I, I think the, the movement that was targeting us it's not as if they stopped being active in the states when some of them were in charge of important agencies at the federal level. Unfortunately, there's quite a few folks that have been engaged in that kind of advocacy, and the activity has continued on multiple levels of government. I will say that here we are in 2022, and even before the state legislative sessions started, we saw anti-LGBT bills 
pre-filed, including many bills targeting transgender young people again. And some of what that means is that we all have a responsibility to intensify our work to help a lot more people understand how misguided those bills are and to get to know who transgender people are, especially trans youth, and how how hurtful and gratuitous and, you know, whether intentionally mean-spirited or, or simply politically convenient it may be to target trans young people. It's really harmful and folks need to think twice about who they're hurting and why. It really is up to all of us to take the political effectiveness away from those issues by increasing our own educational efforts. Do you have any insight on why so many of these bills target trans people and trans youth in particular, as opposed to other segments of the LGBTQ community? Well, this is just a surmise on my part, but I think it's because transgender people remain less well-known. I think significantly the push for the freedom to marry meant that same-sex couples were much more in a public spotlight. Many of us came out to more people and participated in the public discussions about marriage equality. And a lot more people came to know us and to understand that being denied equal treatment and inclusion was hurtful and was hurtful to to nice people that they didn't really want to hurt and that that this is a, a change that should come. And we did see around the same time that public support was growing for the freedom to marry that our opponents shifted more to targeting transgender people. And they started by claiming that transgender women would create danger of violence in public restrooms for cisgender women. And they had some success passing rules based on that imagined danger. We did a lot of advocacy. We as a movement did a lot of advocacy. Some very brave trans folks came out and helped people understand more who they are. And we gained the ability, uh, for a while at least, to block those measures. And also Lambda Legal and and some of our colleagues and other organizations did some litigation and and managed to get some of those laws uh, tossed out. And then the the focus shifted to other areas. There was some focus on access to healthcare and and facilities of various kinds. And then more recently, we've seen the, the focus on transgender young people. And that's particularly insidious and cruel, in my view, because young people, no matter who we are, we always have issues that we're struggling with. And especially these days, it seems like there's a lot of stress and stress that affects young people in, in particular ways. And for trans young people, some of that is even more intense. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of variety among people, but that can tend to be true. And so to have lawmakers proposing measures without any showing of need, really, but that singles out transgender young people as as different and as not worthy to be recognized for who they are, not included in school programs like other kids, is really hurtful and damaging whether those bills become law or not, I think that's something that people don't always recognize, that the legislative process puts a spotlight on people, and there's lots of public rhetoric that can really demonize transgender people of any age, and that increases stigma, and that's really bad. It's very bad for mental health and can have terrible consequences for people that are targeted that way. So I do think it's a real problem, and I think we're seeing this now because the issue still works politically. 
And from what I can gather in particular, it's we're going to see a lot of it during this midterm election year because some candidates are selecting this as an issue that they think works for them politically to to excite their base and generate a sense of self-righteous indignation and policy. So we really have to do everything we can to explain why that's misguided. We shouldn't be passing laws that treat people differently without any showing of why, uh, of the reason behind that, other than just making assumptions about people that, you know, are, are really not, they're not sound. They're, they're not based on the facts and evidence in a problem that needs to be solved. So we're going to see those things as long as they're politically useful for the people that are advancing them. And then when we have succeeded with enough public education that they're no longer useful, they'll stop doing it. And aside from trans youth, what other issues do some of these bills cover? Well, we've seen a rise in proposals to expand religious rights to not follow the law. One of the developments of just the past couple of years is proposals to expand religious rights based on the COVID pandemic. People that were objecting to the rules that were limiting the size of gatherings in order to try to contain the, the spread of the pandemic. There were some religious groups that sued to challenge those restrictions on religious grounds. And then following that, we've seen lawsuits and arguments by people who claim that they have a religious objection to vaccines and being required to take a vaccine or, or else be tested a lot. And some of these proposals are not actually focusing. The argument is talking about COVID-related restrictions of various kinds or rules of various kinds, but the legal proposals are very broad. In fact, they're similar to proposals that we've been seeing for at least 10 or more years, some of which arose as we were having more and more success winning the freedom to marry. We saw proposals in many states to create religious rights to discriminate that were explicitly presented as ways to permit discrimination against married same-sex couples or to discriminate against uh, same-sex couples who were going to get married and were shopping for goods or services for their celebrations. We saw those bills you know, in years past, then we stopped seeing them so much, and now we're seeing some of them again. The other area that I would uh, think is very important to have in mind um, are proposals to expand religious rights to not participate in providing certain types of medical care. We have seen some of these in the past about reproductive health care of various kinds and abortion care in particular. More recently, we've seen some similar arguments related to gender transition or gender affirming care. But some of these bills, including a couple of measures that passed back in uh, just last year in 2021, are not limited to any particular medical care. They propose broad rights of people working and providing health care, health professionals and sometimes other employees of, of health settings to present religious objections to doing parts of their job. And that can create enormous problems for healthcare institutions that are employers that are trying to staff their workplace to provide the care that patients need if they have workers who are 
making religious objections to essential parts of their job. This is a whole area of law of how much religious freedom do workers have in various contexts. But these recent bills aim to expand and really tilt the balance in favor of those asserting religious rights to object to parts of their job, to not provide care to certain people or certain types of care. And that can make it quite difficult for the care that people depend on to actually be delivered. Do you think that all this state action against LGBTQ equality is a coordinated effort? Well, certainly there are parts of it that are coordinated. There are organizations that develop model legislation and then bring it to members of state legislatures or share it among networks of advocates. And we often see similar bills, you know, sometimes verbatim the same language, introduced in multiple states around the same time or one right after the other, after the other, after the other. And, you know, that's not an accident. But sometimes a lawmaker will be given an idea by an advocate and will draft a bill and introduce it. And people in another state will see that they did that and will copy it. And it's not directly coordinated, but there's a certain collaborative spirit there. So sometimes it's coordinated, sometimes it's more coincidental, but we do see common themes. And what I've noticed year to year is that sometimes we've seen a focus on, say, access to public restrooms and efforts to prevent trans folks from using appropriate facilities. More recently, we've had this focus on school sports programs. At other times, we've seen a focus on uh, blocking access to medical care. Sometimes we've seen a raft of bills about school curriculum or pulling books out of libraries or censoring teachers who want to provide accurate information to students. So things do sometimes come in, I don't know if it's waves exactly, but particular themes that gain dominance at a particular time. Sometimes a theme will gain dominance until we have some successful litigation, shutting it down. And then instead of just calming down and focusing on things like fixing the electrical grid or providing services that people need, those legislators will find another issue that gets people excited and mobilized, even if there's not actually a problem for them to, to solve. And, you know, we've seen that over the years. Unfortunately, I don't expect it to change anytime soon. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. Laws address specific issues and situations, but in a general way, they also send broader messages to the public about the values a society holds. So when the law talks about equality, for instance, that's a kind of beacon that telegraphs what we want our nation to stand for. But in the same way, when there are laws against equality, that can send a very negative message to people who are discriminated against. Tell us about that. Yes, that's really true. I mean, Perhaps the most powerful example of that that immediately comes to mind is that for many years there were criminal laws against same-sex relationships, that is, adult same-sex intimate relationships. The criminal laws of many states 
could impose or did impose very serious penalties, many, many years in prison for gay men to have sex. Gay men in the privacy of their home, not bothering anybody to express their love in an adult way, if uh, found by the police doing that, they could face many years in prison. Lambda Legal and other LGBT legal organizations worked for many, many years to get rid of those laws. And in fact, when I was in law school uh, many years ago, our movement brought a case on that issue to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court decided in 1986 that the state of Georgia was permitted to have a penalty many years in prison for a gay male couple to be having sex in their own bedroom. And that was a devastating blow. We were making arguments that same-sex couples should have the same constitutional right to privacy, to be able to have an adult relationship in their own home that uh, different-sex couples have, that the Supreme Court had said the constitutional right of privacy, the right of of limited government to not interfere with adults having an adult relationship, that gay couples should have the same right as straight couples. And the Supreme Court said no at that time. And it took us 17 years to get the Supreme Court to reverse that decision. And during those years, the existence of those laws, those so-called sodomy laws, were used to justify lots of other types of discrimination against LGB people. These were generally not used against trans folks, but used as an excuse to take children away from their parents, to deny public employment. They were cited sometimes as justification for kicking gay people out of the military or denying a security clearance or, you know, many different settings that had nothing to do with adult sexual relationships. But this was uh, taken as a national policy that gay people are immoral and our relationships can be criminalized. It was a statement of of policy. And we had to be quite creative in our legal arguments to try to litigate about situations that clearly had nothing to do with sex to say, look, well, we, we should have equality rights, even if you say we don't have these privacy rights. There was something about it that was inherently unstable, and eventually we persuaded the Supreme Court that the prior decision was wrong. But the same thing is true with other issues as well, and we're certainly seeing that with the targeting of transgender folks, that denial of equal participation in one setting then tends to stand for the idea that that group of people is some kind of threat or not legitimate, not deserving of inclusion and respect, dignity and even friendship and love. And that's an important reason why, no matter what the issue is, we need to insist on on equality, on equal freedom, that everybody needs to have the same rights. The majority should not be free to impose its views in a discriminatory way against minority groups. What effects do you think this beacon signaling has on LGBTQ people, especially youth? Well, I think we're seeing it, you know, and some very brave trans folks have come forward and testified about the need for legal protections and and how harmful it is to see adults in leadership roles in their state, whether it's members of a legislature or a governor or other people in a social position. This is certainly true for civic leaders and clergy as well. When grown-ups in positions of authority describe them as being a threat or that they shouldn't be included, they shouldn't be respected and seen for who they are, 
you know, that sends a terrible message and it goes beyond eroding confidence and self-esteem. It can cause people to feel really unsafe and sometimes for good reason, because when political leadership whips up fears and demonizes a group, sometimes that can create tragic consequences. So I think this has been a particularly intense time for trans youth or for any young people who are not conforming to broad social assumptions and stereotypes about gender and sexual identity. It has been harmful in the past when the social stigma was unchallenged, and it's very harmful today when it is particularly intense and so much in the public media with coverage that we have, we can engage in the conversation that's positive. But sometimes it can mean for young people there's no escape from these stigmatizing messages. And we need to be really concerned about that. Trans people are still at a heightened risk of violence. Do you think that these anti-LGBTQ laws play a role in violence against LGBTQ people? I'm afraid the answer is yes. Both the laws and the efforts to pass them, whether they pass or not, I think there are many different things that play a role in the really shockingly elevated rates of violence against LGBTQ people and against trans people especially, and trans people of color. We we know that the numbers are particularly shocking and heartbreaking as we, we see the death toll of black trans women year after year. It tells us that there are some some things that are really wrong, some things in our society that are really broken. I don't think it's just the laws, though. I think the laws or the bills are there because there's a receptive political audience for them. So there's some existing stigma, and then that stigma is intensified by the political rhetoric designed to push these bills, or at least to have political signaling by the people that advance them, that they represent a certain set of views on things. But what also is going on is a social environment that is just rife with stigma and discrimination and exclusion. And so some of the violence happens because people are poor, because people experience employment, housing, and other types of discrimination and are in places that are more dangerous. So we have multiple things going on, which means that the solutions may need to have multiple different components. We need to have equal employment opportunity and access to healthcare and good safe housing and opportunities for people. And there's a particular spotlight on the violence, the hate crimes that are at uh, shocking levels. But I think beyond the particular violent problems. There's a reality of disproportionate poverty and health disparities and limits to opportunity that come from the amount of discrimination that we have in in society. So good laws are very helpful. But the bigger picture is we, we need to have a different social understanding so that there's less discrimination, including less violence. We're out of time, but we'll continue this next time. Thanks, Jenny. My pleasure. That's it for this 19th part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting Team, 
including youth participants, Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and other major podcast sites. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.